jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle, murky fool, like swirling cake gold, cold blood is with the Stromsky, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the art of reading. I've been thinking about the brain and how we make sense of things, of time, place, purpose, and how it all fits together. I've been thinking about our relationship to reading and books, the physical act and the emotional experience. I've been thinking about the place of books in our culture, our lives, our homes, and the trajectory of history and humanity. My guest today is Thatcher Wine, the founder of Juniper Books, custom collections, craft custom book collections for purchase, and creates and designs custom libraries for a variety of clients, a specialty bookseller with a focus on building custom libraries and creating unique book sets. Welcome, Thatcher, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ellie. So I pinched this from your Jupiter Books website. Thatcher grew up in New York City, where his parents owned and operated one of the most innovative restaurants in American culinary history, the Quilted Giraffe. While working nearly every job in the restaurant, Thatcher absorbed a thing or two about creativity, service, and attention to detail from his parents. Thatcher graduated from Dartmouth College with a degree in history and art history and lives in Boulder, Colorado. When he's not curating libraries or designing book sets, you can find him biking, hiking, skiing, or reading in a comfortable chair. I'm guessing you're not doing any of those things. <laughs> As of late, I'm guessing you're pretty darn busy. We, I, I have been very busy, fortunately. People love books, and uh, we've been growing the company and doing a lot of projects, but I still try to make a little bit of time for reading and, and the things that I love out here in the West. So Departures Magazine described you as the man who brought back the library. And so I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about libraries. And, and at the very beginning, so in your mind, and you think maybe in the, in the larger um, mind of the dictionary and beyond, what constitutes a library? When I, I guess when I use a library, it's, it's mainly referring to a private library, so a home library and not the public library that we all know and also love. Um, but, you know, a library can really be any size. That's what's so great about books and having a book collection, right? I mean, for one person, it could just be, you know, your three favorite books, and that's your library. And for somebody else that has, a, you know, a big, large home and a custom-built library with a library ladder, perhaps, you know, maybe they have 3,000 books. And we really help clients with libraries of all sizes and book collections of all sizes. Um, you know, I'd say our average project is probably around three or 400 books. Um, so maybe that's what I'd call a, you know, average residential library. And do you think the, the library itself and the, the purpose of the library and how people use libraries has changed tremendously from what it was in the past? Well, on the one hand, Yes, but it's really, there's a continuum there. So I think, you know, the, the day and age that we live in, and we'll probably get into more about this, but the way people are accessing books online with ebooks and technology and the cloud um, has forced some people to look at the physical library differently. But I think it's really just a return. There's kind of a momentary blip where people thought, you know, maybe the library wasn't necessary anymore. Um, they did, they didn't really need to have all these books taking up space in their house for, you know, a few years. Um, but now they've realized that printed books are very different from eBooks and that people still love to be surrounded by real books and be able to flip through the pages and find what they need. So I don't think it's changed really too much in the past, you know, 
almost 500 years, or sorry, over 500 years since printed books were invented. Um, I think people have always, you know, loved libraries and, and been very calmed by being in them. And I'm thinking too about Downton Abbey, that a lot of important things happen in their library. I think the only time I rem remember so far, I haven't finished the series, but where they actually are reading books and talking about books is when the chauffeur wants to borrow some books. But, but the room itself is very important and seems to hold a place of power and prestige. Do you think there's a connection with that, with the ability to read and the, the, the owning of books in the past that was connected with a sense of privilege and prestige and power? Yeah, no, and that's a great example. I, I loved Downton Abbey, and I love the scenes in libraries, and when they go to visit the other castles, you know, it's always yeah. fun to, to see the other uh, libraries. Um, and, you know, I think library, well, knowledge has always, you know, equaled power, and the act of putting information down on paper and disseminating it or keeping it in one place, you have lots of ideas and discoveries and proclamations that are all on paper in books in a library, you know, has always been a source of power and importance going back to, you know, Library of Alexandria and um, Roman politicians who had libraries and, you know, even before printed books were made. And so I think, you know, there's that continuum that's evidenced in Downton Abbey and through, you know, British, you know, noble libraries and the beautiful collections that they have, and, you know, that the library was a very important source or center in the home for those get-togethers, um, you know, for entertaining your guests, for having tea time or whatever it may be. And whether or not, you know, all those books are being referenced, read at any given time, the mere, you know, physical presence of all that knowledge and history and literature on the shelves just gives it, you know, sort of a heavy weight and importance that I think anyone recognizes when they walk into a library and they can feel it. And have you always been careful sort of about, you know, where you put your books, the, the physical space your books took up in your home when you lived in, in you know, anything from your college dorm to apartments later and, and a home? Was that something you were sort of aware of, of the physical space that your books were taking up where you lived? It was, and it wasn't really till I got older that I realized that, you know, not every single person thought of their books that way. Um, but when I look back, you know, in my childhood and the books that I read and loved, I mean, I can remember exactly, you know, where they were on the shelf, you know, where I kept my copy of Catcher in the Rye, where, you know, the never-ending story was, which, you know, which library I checked it out of and where I was when I was reading it. And so there's always that, you know, physical, emotional, intellectual connection that I had to the books that I was reading and how I kept them organized. Um, and I thought, you know, everybody did that. And I think whether it's consciously or subconsciously, I mean, I think people, because books take a while to read, um, I think you generally do have more of a memory of where you were when you bought that book, where you kept it. And it just has this kind of physical, emotional space in your life beyond just the story that the books tell. 
Thatcher, you had said these books, the stories, and the printed editions all mean something to me and are part of my story. Your relationship to books is complex and complete. I want to talk a little bit about like this, maybe the specific elements. And I, I'm glad you just mentioned Catcher in the Rye because that was the one I had on my, my notes. So sort of how did you discover it and in what ways did you relate to it? And, and what about it drew you in? So I think Catcher in the Rye was um, assigned in my eighth grade English literature class. Um, so it was just, you know, required reading for school. And I can remember reading it on the bus on the way to school and on the way home from school. And I still have the, the paperback copy. Uh, we actually created some book jacket designs based upon my personal copy of Catcher in the Rye. And, you know, so even though it started as a reading assignment, um, I just felt like, you know, as a 13-year-old boy growing up in New York City, reading about Holden Caulfield and his adventures in New York, you know, this personal connection to it. And so the stories kind of intertwined with, you know, the story that I was living and, you know, coming of age tale about, you know, just discovery and, um, you know, having crushes and problems at school. And so it all just, you know, resonated with me at a certain time in my life and then has been a book that I like to go back on and kind of revisit those feelings of what it was like for me growing up now that I, you know, and now that I have kids, I can sort of think about, you know, what they're going through as they read books too. So it was just all kind of intertwined. Okay, so I want to go back in a little bit to talk sure. about that book jacket. We're going to put that on hold for a minute because that was... <laughs> okay. When we talk about the designs, we're going to be talking about that. Because I saw that one, I'm like, really? That's the book jacket for that? Um, so we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, stop you for a minute because we've kind of jumped head in and talk a little more about Juniper Books, exactly what you guys do and, and how it came about. Yeah, so I started the business 15 years ago, um, but it wasn't really intending to be a business. It was, it was just a hobby. And I had my own book collection. Uh, I kind of liked going out to, you know, state sales and yard sales and bookstores and buying books and seeing if I could sell them for more than what I paid for them. And I wasn't really intending it to be this career. And I'd previously been in the technology industry and done some things in the early days of the internet. Um, and I, to be honest, I was a little bit burnt out on that. So I, was, I really liked just doing something physical, holding books in my hand and um, playing around with them for a little while while I figured out what to do with the next phase of my career. And what started, you know, largely focused on rare books and first editions evolved over time as I got requests from various family friends or interior designers that I knew, you know, hey, can you put together a library that, that has these books in it and looks like this, you know, so we want to be about, you know, history and have literary classics, but we also want it to, you know, look kind of modern and contemporary, or we want it to be all leather books. So I started getting these requests um, and thinking, huh, you know, I wonder maybe if there is really a business here and a niche that other people haven't really focused on. Because at that point in 2001, there were a lot of, you know, there's plenty of bookstores and people were starting to buy books online. So I felt like it was a pretty competitive business. But if I could find my own niche and serve a need that hadn't been met, you know, maybe then I really could spend my time being a bookseller and a niche 
each bookseller. And was that idea out there at the time? Like, was that familiar to you that you could take books and make them look like something? That that was something people were, were doing for their libraries? That they would put different jackets on it or design even jackets for a collection? I had never heard of that until I yeah, saw your no, site. It was, no, it was pretty, it was original and... I mean, there's not really anybody doing it today even. Um, so until we came along and invented it, um, the only options were basically to get books that already existed. So, you know, if you wanted books by the foot, you could or- order them, you know, by color, by subject with some people. But they wouldn't really pay attention to the two different things that we specialize in. So one is, you know, curating the books that you want, and the other is making them look like the design and, you know, that, that fits into your space and your home. And do you remember what was the first set of, of custom books that you made and, and what the design was on them? Um, yeah. So it was actually, there were a couple steps at first, but, you know, what, let me think of the best way to answer that Well, question. I'm just wondering if you yeah. remember sort of the moment of that idea where you thought, oh, well, okay, like books don't have to just come and sit on your shelf in the jackets they're in. Like we could right, not only right. change so that actually, jacket, so, but the whole, we could take 10 books or 100 books and, and change the jackets to create a sort of, you know, Pintalist picture. Right. So actually the evolution of the idea essentially was that, you know, we were curating these books as they were published, and sometimes we'd sort them by color. Um, and then a designer in Miami said, you know, can you put together a thousand white books for me? And we said, sure, you know, we'll make you just white book jackets using art paper. Um, so it was like a nice, you know, pure white look for Miami. So it looked perfect there. But there were no titles printed on the books. So I thought that's perfect for, you know, commercial space like a hotel lobby, but no homeowner is ever going to want that in their home because they're going to want to know what books they have. So it was really right then that I had this epiphany and the light bulb went off um, where I thought, what if we could get, you know, print the color that the designers want, but also print the titles on the jackets. So that's when I, you know, bought a fancy printer and started playing around in Photoshop and InDesign and trying to figure out, you know, could we lay out book jackets one at a time, print them in the desired colors, um, and print the titles on them. And then pretty soon after that, I started thinking, why, why stop there? You know, can we make new books look like old books, designing leather-style book jackets? Can we make, you know, old books look like new books with modern contemporary designs? Can we turn bookshelves into artwork? you know, have an image that lines up across multiple books. And that was basically in 2010. And ever since then, we've just gotten more and more creative um, with the book jacket designs. And are there customers who don't care what books are behind the designs? And, and is that irritating to you or have you learned to accept it? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, we do plenty of projects that are purely decorative. Uh, that's what I call it. And... It's just about what the books look like on the outside or the color or the image. And that's totally fine with me. I mean, I'm not a purist. I think, you know, when you go into a lot of bookstores, like, they want, you know, if they're selling you a book, they want to make sure you read it. <laughs> I think there's, like, a little bit of elitism in that. And I don't, I think what you do with your books is up to you. And I think it's completely fine with me if the mere presence of books is comforting to people and they honestly don't plan to read any of the books or the titles aren't even printed on them. Because I think there's just something, there's some inherent meaning in the shape of a book and bookcases and libraries, you know, that just 
are comforting to people. And they know that time was spent writing all these books, even if they're not going to read them. There's just that weightiness of it that lends a meaning to their lives. And are there always books behind the jackets? And in those cases where they might not care about the book, do you give thought to which books you're going to put in that collection? Yeah. So everything we do involves real books. And so it always starts with, you know, a selection of books that have to come from somewhere. Um, and we do give thought even to the books that are purely decorative. And usually what goes into those are just bestsellers, you know, just extra copies of Stephen King and John Grisham that they printed. Um, you know, maybe some other just random generic topics. Um, and, you know, we, we generally, generally like just do a light screening to make sure that if anyone really does open it and they're in a restaurant, a hotel lobby or something, like it's not, you know, obscene content it's or a, fit. You know, a racy novel or something, you know, that somebody would go complain to the hotel manager about. Um, so we do a little bit of light screening there, even when it's not really curated for the content. And so I want to talk a little bit about the different book sets and putting those together. For instance, you have a set that, that comes, the British flag set. And I'm just wondering how you decide which books are going to go in there and if that's something you do on your own, if you guys have a team, if you all talk about it, if there's debate, if there's argument. Yeah, so, I mean, the company is about 10 people right now, and we do have product development meetings where we say, you know, we want to create a British flag set and who should we put in it. Um, there's the criteria that is involved basically, you know, something to do with are these classics um, will they stand the test of time? Have they stood the test of time? And so we pick out some books and authors based upon that. There's also this, you know, size and shape issue that we deal with. You know, it's kind of like creating sculptures and we want them to look good. Um, so we try to pick books that are usually the same size and um, are just a nice kind of shape for the artwork that goes around the books. Um, so there's, a, there's an art and a science to it. And, and are there times you've had to draw a line? I mean, is there a picture maybe that's been requested, something maybe on a Jane Austen collection? <laughs> you said, no, I just can't put that on. Or do you think about sort of what, what would the author think about this match? <laughs> um, I mean, for custom orders, we really will do whatever the client wants. So whether it matches up and, you know, or not. And... You know, usually people that are actually, you know, that want something special and one of a kind and tied to their favorite author or subject matter, I mean, it, it usually makes sense to them. And that's the only thing that's really important. And I don't worry too much. I mean, I think in the products that we create and we sell multiples of, like our pink leather style Jane Austen books, you know, really trying to channel, you know, what would Jane Austen want this set to look like? And, you know, how can we turn the content inside out? Or like our George Orwell set and represent that on the outside. So when you're looking at that book set on the shelf from across the room, you know what it is without even going up to it and seeing that it's George Orwell. Um, so a lot of it's just conveying the feeling of the books on the outside. And so is the, the J.D. Salinger tree set, is that a fit for you with the trees and the kids and the balloons to your experience of reading the book? Yeah, I mean, the that one kind of just tries to represent, you know, the innocence and playfulness of the novels um, and it's a good example because we have a few different J.D. Salinger designs and you know an author can mean different things to different people so we like to give uh, you know prospective buyers a choice 
which Mark Twain set do they like, which Jane Austen set do they like, um, which one really resonates both with their feelings about the book as well as, you know, which one fits in with wherever they're going to put it. And and you have a lot of different types of customers, it seems. I saw you said you sell books for yachts, um, hotels, spas, individual customers, uh, and you need to be innovative in a lot of these areas. So is, is innovation driving you, and how does that jive sort of with your balancing it with the sort of history and tradition of books and reading? Or, or is, it, is that a parallel fit in your mind? So, I mean, I think books are truly universal. I think, you know, everybody either has books in their home or would like to have a few books in their home or whatever space they're in. And I think there's been this very, you know, kind of simple transactional way that you get books throughout history. You know, you go to the bookstore, you get the books, put them in your house. Um, and most people are still pretty well served by that model. And, and maybe now you add on, you know, that you can order them online. But I think there are a lot of the underserved parts of the market where people also like to have books. You start to, and I think that, you know, falls into, you know, books on your boat or books at your summer cabin or books at your ski house. And, you know, a lot of times there's not like a bookstore where you can go and get all the books that you want for that place. So we try to make it easy to pick out a whole collection, have it be unified by content and design, and be able to ship, you know, anywhere in the world and have all, you know, a complete library show up in Italy or Switzerland or Dubai, wherever you need it. And, and so that's what we've been doing for years. And, you know, I think, um, I think it's just sort of a collection of, of niches that we've put together, um, you know, in order to just be really customer friendly and, and get people the books that they want wherever they want them. And you, I saw you have a number of um, different language custom-wrapped editions of Harry Potter. What, what country has that sold the most in so far? Um, well, definitely the, the American editions, and then the British editions are second most popular. And I think among the other ones, I'm going to guess that, well... I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I just all, wondered when I was reading similar. all the yeah, different countries, we, I thought, all right, like, does Japan just all yeah. of a sudden go crazy for this? Or, no. you know, so is actually, there any surprises it's a, there? It's a great example. So the, the Harry Potter sets have been really popular. And they kind of, they grew up, they, they really represent, you know, everything that we do. So it's, they're classic books that, you know, have stood the test of time and will continue to be classics forever. They've encouraged so many people to read and discover and um, get involved in the books. And I think people have their personal relationship to J.K. Rowling and to Harry Potter. And the covers that we make in the different house styles, so Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, and Slytherin, allow people to buy a set of the books, put them on their shelves, and feel like they were part of it. They're personalized to them. They represent the house that they're, they've been sorted into which, you know, come from the novels and the movies, and people are very serious about, you know, saying, I'm a Ravenclaw. Um, and the, doing the international sets simply grew out of emails that we got. You know, hey, I love these books, but can you do a German edition, a French edition, a Japanese edition? And we just did them all one at a time as a custom order for each person as they inquired, and then turned them into a product and made them available for, for other people from that country. Since books are heavy <laughs> and really expensive to ship around the world, 
Um, we also get a lot of inquiries about, can I just buy the jackets? I already own the book. And we're going to keep working on making those available over time because we really do, we want people to personalize their books and keep them. But we understand that, you know, giving all your money to the post office and FedEx and UPS is, is a lot to ask. So we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I am here with Thatcher Wine from Juniper Books, and we are talking about their custom-made books, we're talking about libraries, and we'll be talking about the act of reading when we come back. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment, so stay with us. This is KDPI 88.5 FM, Ketchum. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking to Thatcher Wine from Juniper Books, and we are talking about books and and reading. We're going to spend the next half of the show actually talking a little bit more about the act of reading. So I've got from Wikipedia, reading is a means of language acquisition, communication, and of sharing information and ideas. Like all languages, it is a complex interaction between the text and the reader, which is shaped by the reader's prior knowledge, experiences, attitude, and language, community which is the culturally and socially situated. So I ran across an article in The New Yorker, I think it had been published last year, by Saradin Dovey, and it is entitled, Can Reading Make You Happier? So what do you think? You are spending a, a large majority of your time of your, in, in your life with books. Can reading make you happier? Um, absolutely. I definitely agree that reading can make you happier. I think it can make you smarter. I think it can make you see the world in new ways and from other people's perspectives. Um, I also think that being surrounded by books, whether or not you read them, can make you happier. I think there's just something you know, comforting about having books and having them in your home and being able to pick them up and skip to a page, um, reference a fact, you know, read a story to somebody else, read a poem. So I definitely agree that reading can make you happier. And have you delved more deeply into that idea sort of like thinking like why, do you get a sense of why maybe having those books do you think it gives you a sense of, of place or of connection or grounding? What does it do for you in your life? So in my life, and I, mean, I def- definitely recognize that we're in this very you know, high-tech, digital, saturated world that we live in right now. Things just seem to be accelerating. And you know, we just get more and more phone calls, texts, emails, things that we need to do in our lives. And it it's, doesn't show any signs of slowing down. And yet a book has always been the same that it, it has been throughout history. And you pick it up. You can't generally read it any faster than you used to. Um, and so it forces us to, to sit down, sit in one place, flip the pages one at a time, and read it. And so I think like we have this craving to you know sit down and spend time with a book. We all wish we could do more of it, whether or not we will admit it. (laughs) Um, But when you actually do it and you sit down and you read a book, um, you get that sense of calm and peace that I don't think you can get anywhere else in the world right now. And are there books that you think, Thatcher, that everyone should read? Like, is there one book that you're like, if everyone is only going to read one book in their lives, this should be the one? Or no? Um, Actually, I don't think so. I think books are so personal, and the great thing about them is that there is infinite choice, um, that I don't think there's one book that everybody should read. 
I'm a big believer in the classics and that people, you know, should read them at some point in their life. But, you know, which Charles Dickens book appeals the most to you um, is totally up to you. And, you know, I grew up reading some books that I would consider classics like Agatha Christie, um, John Steinbeck, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I, and I love those. And if they're right for you, that's great. Other people might say they love the Bronte sisters or Jane Austen or um, William Faulkner. So I think there's something for everybody in, in this kind of idea of infinite choice that you know, you'll find the right books and the right books will find you. In her article, Dovey says, in a secular age, I suspect that reading fiction is one of the few remaining paths to transcendence, that elusive state in which the distance between the self and the universe shrinks. Reading fiction makes me lose all sense of self, but at the same time makes me feel most uniquely myself. How Have you sort of within, when you started your, having a strong connection with books and, and through your reading life, do you think about the relationship, not only the state that reading might put you in, but the relationship that you develop with the author? Is that something you've experienced as well? Um, yeah. So I think, I think you know, one of the, the ideas, well, so I think the author's stories as they write them, you know, are very much the author's stories, right? So if you have one book in front of you, let's say it's The Great Gatsby, you know, that is F. Scott Fitzgerald's story. But, you know, once you read that, you develop a relationship to, you know, not only the plot, but perhaps, you know, a little bit about the life of F. F. Scott Fitzgerald and the Roaring Twenties and his life with Zelda and his life in France. And you develop this whole relationship about how, you know, what you know of the author, what you know of the plot, but also how that book entered your life, where you were when you read it. And how did it make you feel? And maybe it made you feel like you wanted to read all the works of F. Scott Fitzgerald, or you wanted to, you know, understand more about his relationship with Hemingway or other, you know, writers in Paris in the twenties. And um, so I think what's so unique about books and literature is that you develop these relationships with all the books that you own, or maybe whether you own them or not, but all the books that you've read and maybe the ones that you keep. And it becomes like this, you know, kind of alternate DNA of our life. It's completely unique to you. So somebody else may have read the same books, but has a completely different, you know, kind of genetic imprint about the impact that they, those books had on them. And they might decide not to keep any of those books, or they might keep their favorite one and put it next to, you know, a nonfiction book or a book about dogs or, you know, wherever they live. And so we all have this completely unique imprint of the books that we've read and what the story has meant to us. And do you reread books? Are there books that, that you re- have read numerous times and have you had different experiences the, the different times you've read a particular book? Yeah. I mean, I've definitely um, reread a lot of the books that I read when I was a kid. Um, Mark Twain's a great example of that. You know, I loved him as a kid and then uh, re- have been working my way through some of them and, you know, and amazed at, uh, you know, what my impression of them was at the time, uh, 30 years ago versus now and just how I noticed additional details and observed the language and, you know, understand even just how, you know, our culture evolves and how certain authors are perceived different ways over time. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that that changes throughout your life as you revisit some of the classics. 
would you write in a book? We had some house guests and they were ordering some takeout food. And she grabbed the book on the side table and said, oh, can I write in this? And my daughter and I both literally gasped at the same time. <laughs> and she said, what? I, it's a paperback. I'm just going to write on the back page. And we were doing <laughs> That's a good question. So generally, no. <laughs> Not a fan of writing in books unless you're, you know, already famous. <laughs> Um, if you're Albert Einstein, then, then it's fine to write in your books and somebody can appreciate that later on. But, you know, since I started off doing rare books and old books and first editions and antiquarian books, I do find the writing that are in old books fascinating. And they add some, you know, history and provenance and you make up these additional stories in your head about, you know, who else held this book in their hand, um, based upon, you know, their signature or their address or the notes they wrote in there. And I think it's fascinating. I had, um, I still do some rare book sourcing for clients and, um, I obtained a, uh, John Locke first edition from 1690, I think. And it had corrections in his own hand, um, in the book. So that was amazing to know that you were holding a book that John Locke, the philosopher, you know, had held in his hands and had written in the book himself, um, you know, back, they couldn't send the book back to the printer to correct the typesetting, you know, so he just corrected a few things in there himself and the hundred copies that they printed. Wow. Yeah. If you wrote the book and you're John Locke, you write all you want. <laughs> different than a takeout order. Yeah. yeah, different. So I want to talk about the relationship sort of, of, of reading to the greater community. And part of creating a library is, is communicating um, in a public way, you know, if people are in your home, what books you have and, and your relationship to books. There seems to be an argument in the scientific community. Um, one side appears to be winning as to whether reading gives us greater social perception and a deeper sense of empathy. There was a 2010 study by Marr who found that um, Young children who read more, the more stories they had read to them, the keener their theory of mind or mental model of other people's intentions was, that they had a better ability to understand other people's experience, um, that it could improve our self-esteem, our sleep, lower depression and stress levels, um, but also help us to be more empathetic to others. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with all that. I think it, I think it, I don't really need to see a study to know that reading is good for you. And I just feel like it's just one of those things that we, we inherently know is true. We wish we, our kids could read more books. We wish we had time to read more books. We know that, you know, when we pause, pick up a book and learn something new about the world and learn about other people's experiences um, or even just follow somebody else's story, that it, I think it helps reset our minds. Um, it helps show us different perspectives. It gives us, you know, more creative ideas. I know that happens for me. Um, and so I, I don't think there's anyone who would say that, you know, books are bad for the world. You know, there shouldn't be books. If only we didn't have books, there, there'd be world peace, you know. Um, I think it's just something we, we inherently know is true. The more books there are in the world, the more people read them, the better off we would be. Okay. But, so, so how about ebooks? Are there people in the world, and are you one of them, that think ebooks might be bad for the world? So I don't really think ebooks are bad for the world. I think any way that people consume information and, and read stories 
and get exposed to history and alternate points of view is is good for the world. And I just don't think the ebooks are a replacement for printed books. I think they have their place, you know, if you're if you're on the go, if you're traveling, if you want to listen to an audiobook while you're working out or in the car. I mean, I think those are all great things and great ways to consume, you know, additional ways to consume information and stories. So I think they expand people's intellectual consumption. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there's any replacement for the printed book and that feeling of holding it in your hands, the time that it takes to work your way through a printed book, the feeling you know, that you get of time from flipping the pages, the smell of the book, just the tactile sensations that you have. And I think, you know, since I remember a lot of the books that I read as a kid and, you know, holding them on the New York City public bus, placing them on, you know, my shelf at home, putting it on the counter at the library. I think there's like this tactile memory that you get from having spent, you know, maybe six hours or 30 hours reading a book, holding that physical shape in your hand that you just can't get from an ebook. And there seems to be a lot of uh, science emerging around that as well, that there is that distinction between just consuming information, uh, maybe on, on a screen versus reading a book, and that even the consumption of information might not be as effective. You're definitely losing some of the experience that is created in your brain when you are tactily reading and something has pages. Uh, there were some studies that were talking about, neuroscience studies that were talking about deep reading, and that when you're actually in a, sen- in a place of reading a book tactily, that you go into this almost trance-like state um, where your, your sensory detail and the emotional and the, the moral complexity is all drawn together to create a, a mental representation, but that it draws on the same brain regions that would be activated in real life if a scene were unfolding in your, your physical life, and that that doesn't happen in, in the um, online experience. Yeah, so I definitely, that all resonates as, as being true. I'm not as familiar with the science of it, but I can definitely, you know, feel like that that's true, that there's a completely different experience that happens when you immerse yourself in a physical printed book and spend the time with it um, that is very different than just looking at a screen. Well, it's funny because you might not have known it's science, but you explained, you know, moments ago exactly that experience and the elements of it that are what are critical and the idea that that you are tangibly holding this book and so it, it has a physical existence that you can place yourself in and that you can turn a page forward or turn a page back or remember when you read the part about Darcy was on the left-hand corner of you know the beginning of the book and that that sense of, and, and, and you even expanded it, the sense of you remember where you were reading a particular book and holding it in your hand. Mm-hmm. And so it's creating a complete, um, a, a complete memory and, yeah. and different mental representation. So I think, you know, in the, the digital world, you can have, you know, bits and bytes don't really take up space, at least not anymore. Storage is just infinite in the cloud and on our devices. And so you don't have this sense, you don't have this, the same thing that you have in the physical world where you have to make any trade-offs. You can just put everything into the cloud. Whereas things that enter 
our physical space, whether that's what we're holding in our hand, what we decide to pack in our suitcase, the limited space on our shelves, you have to make a trade-off. And so you're much more committed and engaged in the process of you know, saying, this is important to me, this book over this book. I can't have you know, the entire works of Dostoevsky and every Russian author. You know, I have to make a trade-off about which ones are my favorite books and then which one do I want to take on vacation. And I think by committing to these choices we make in the physical world, um, and saying space is not unlimited, either physical space, time is not unlimited, and space of my brain <laughs> is not unlimited. You know, I'm going to choose something, spend some quality time with it. And it's just by virtue of making all those decisions, it's going to have an impact on you. And do you think actually holding the heft of a book like War and Peace or Anna Karenina in your hand, that that adds to the experience of the, the depth of the, the work? Like that um, the book is physically heavy yeah. where you no, don't? No, I think it, the fact that it, you know, your edition weighs three pounds, <laughs> it has a certain feel in your, your hands. And you can sense how long, you know, Tolstoy worked on the book. And... And that, that means something. Even if you don't sit down and read a biography of an author, you, you can just feel it, right, from how long you're investing in it. You know that there's history behind it. There's the author's story. There's, you know, all these characters and plots that come together. And the fact that it has, like, a real weight and a presence in your lap, um, I think that really does mean something. And do you think people are born readers or, or we're trained to become readers? You'll hear people say, oh, you know, I'm not a reader. I don't read. Um, that's a good question. I think generally, you know, it's, it's a habit we, we learn um, from our families, from our teachers, from, you know, being maybe having a, a library with a comfortable chair at an elementary school or in the hallway. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's a set of circumstances throughout your life that maybe accelerate or decelerate some of your genetic tendencies and just what are the patterns that are repeated by, you know, the influences in your life. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not what I, like, since I know a lot of readers <laughs> and people that are very, you know, bookish and books you know, it's just books, books, books all the time. And I mean, you could sort of say that's me because I have a career built around it. Um, you know, I'm not like the person that was always reading as a kid. So I just, I loved to read. I thought it was something that sort of, you know, everybody did and they kept some books that were important to you and you, you know, bring them from apartment to apartment that you live in and drag the boxes around. And then maybe at some point you upgrade, you know, some of your favorites to hardcovers or maybe leather bound editions. So I sort of thought that's just maybe what, what everybody did in the evolution of their lives. But there are certainly some people that were just never encouraged to read. And I don't think that means that they're not readers. I think they can always become readers. And are you happier when you're reading a book that you love? Um, am I happier? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> well, and I only I mean, ask that because I noticed that of myself. I was, um, I had interviewed Chris Beatty, who wrote No Plot, No Problem. 
And we were talking about part of, of his um, advice, if you're writing, is to really think about like what kind of books you like. Do you like a happy ending? Do you like books that take play, place at the office? Do you like it to be more about the characters? And I, mm. I had never really thought about that. And then when I started mm. thinking about it, I started just taking the next step and thinking, I'm just in my entire life, if I have a book that's sitting on my bedstand that I am engaged in and excited to read, my, my whole life is better. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we all are, hopefully, you know, everybody's had that feeling where they're, like, reading a book and they just don't want it to end, right? And you, like, look forward to, you know, getting back to the book, um, but at the same time, you, you don't want to finish it, right? You just want it to go on forever. And, yeah, I mean, I'm always on the search for, you know, more books like that. And then sometimes you start something and you're like, not into it. You just want it to end so you can find a book that you like. And so will you read more. it through to the end, even if you aren't enjoying it? Uh, 50-50. I mean, a lot of times I will give up and just say, you know, my time is too precious. There are too many books out there. Uh, I should really move on to the next one. But if I haven't identified it yet, I'll, I'll slug it out a little bit and um, see if it improves. So uh, Marianne Wolf, the director of Center for Reading and Language Research at Tufts University and the author of Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain, talks about how reading is something that isn't sort of built into our DNA from, from far ago, that, that our brain has to sort of improvise and create a, a brand new circuit for reading by weaving together other neural tissues devoted to to language and motor coordination and vision to create this ability to read. Do you feel like part of your work and, and the mission of Juniper Books is to, well, I'm going to read what your mission is and then, and then continue my question. On your site, it says, Juniper Books is dedicated to elevating the printed book by enhancing its design, quality, and aesthetic, deepening the meaning of books in our lives, and facilitating the connection between the stories books tell us and the stories they tell about us. Are, are you driven to sort of keep the, the printed page alive and well? Yeah, I definitely, that's one of, definitely one of the things that drives me. And so, you know, in the early days of doing what I do, a lot of people would say that, you know, you're, you're crazy. So I, I was in the tech business before this, and people would say, you know, why are you bothering with printed books? Don't you know, didn't you get the memo? They're going away. Ebooks are going to take over. Why bother printing printed books anymore if you've got ebooks and they serve the same purpose? And I knew just from my own personal relationship to books that printed books are different from ebooks and that people would still want to keep them. I still wanted to keep them. They made me feel a certain way to read them and to look at them on the shelf. So I definitely am driven to give people more reasons to buy printed books, to read them, and to keep them forever. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that if you have a library, you can't read more than one book at a given time, right? I mean, you might alternate, read a few pages of Jane Austen, go read a history book, whatever, and then come back to Jane Austen. But you can't have two books open in front of you. So most of the time, 99% of your library is just sitting there waiting for you to come back to it and read it. And so I feel like it should serve a purpose while it's waiting for you to come back and read it. And it should look good. And not only should it look good, but it should be, should tell you something, to reflect something about who you are, both to yourself, but also to people that come into your house. 
And if you have a family, you know, it should represent kind of a merger of your interests and maybe things that you want your kids to discover. So I think the books on the shelf serve a lot of different purposes. And if we're not shy about saying, okay, when, when a book's not being read, it should do something, <laughs> um, you know, serve a decorative purpose or an informational purpose about who we are or an aspirational purpose, you know, remind you of who you were 20 years ago, what you were into and maybe what you want to come back to when you have time to sit down and read. So I think about all those things, you know, when I'm working with clients, I don't necessarily have a you know, heavy duty discussion about all these things, but it's embedded um, in all the work that we do. I hadn't thought about that before, the actual act of commitment when you're reading a book and that when you open a book and you start to read it, you don't have another book. You don't have a button on that page that you can push to look at something else that's connected with it or that's off topic or that's an ad on the right-hand side, that, that you are making a commitment to engage. Yeah, and I think it's a really important commitment in this world where there's a lot of things competing for our attention. Um, and a lot of very instantaneous, immediate gratification things. Um, so I think to really commit to a book and not be multitasking and just reading is, is important. And I think that's a skill um, that you know, we, we learn and maybe doesn't get called upon enough these days as you know, the world, as all these other things, compete for your attention. So. And to have the rest of your library look really good and be communicating outward while you're reading that one book. Yeah, life. and some, some people have, you know, said, you know, been kind of like purist about it, like books are only for reading, you know. It's only about the story in those pages. But I think that's, that's wishful thinking. Um, you know, if you can have hundreds of books that you love and you want to keep them and they say something about you, but you, you don't have to be reading them to give them importance, right? Um, they can be on your shelf, and they could, they could tell a story even when you're not reading that story. And I'm guessing... And I think that... I'm, I'm, I'm guessing authors of today and, and the past would be super excited to have this another, another element to be able to communicate the story and the message of the book and draw people yeah, in. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's very um, just core to who we are and our, you know, you cited the, the research, you know, on like, you know, reading is not something that's like an inherent ability of ours, but I think storytelling is. So we've, you know, even before there were printed books and things were written down at all, you know, we sat around the campfire or the cave and told stories. And I think that's so intertwined with human nature and Books are just, you know, an evolution of that. They, they allow for authors to tell stories to lots of people. But then when we take those books into our home, we can tell our own stories. And that story is completely unique to us. And it's about, you know, something to do with the stories that are in the books, whether it's Mr. Darcy and Jane Austen novel, um, plus, you know, histories of World War II or whatever we're into. And then we, we create this unique story that we tell to the world and we remind ourselves of that story every time we look at our books, even when we're not reading them. Well, Thatcher, thank you so much for joining us today. And that got me thinking. It was wonderful speaking with you. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me.